This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, gyrocoptering around the world. How about a headset HUD for GA? And a new FA administrator. And let's talk about Game Day by GA. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, uh, it's a guy I was really excited to talk to, somebody I've wanted to talk to for a long time, Tim Tucker from Robinson Helicopter. That's right, Ian. You caught up with him, and he is the chief instructor at Robinson Helicopter. And I really do want to hear more about what he has to say because I've taken a few hours of instruction in a Robinson. Yeah, which uh, which probably he has helped shape. So we'll uh, we'll hear more from him a little later on. But uh, let's get started. A different kind of rotocraft, a gyrocopter. This is a guy who stopped by AOPA. I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago. Really fascinating guy. He is attempting to be, believe it or not, the first person ever to fly around the world in a gyrocopter. Yeah, it's James Ketchell, Ian, and he calls himself a serial adventurer because he's already summited Mount Everest and he's rowed across the Atlantic Ocean solo. So <laughs> row, row, row your boat. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess he's notching yet a third adventure and around the world trip in a gyro. Yeah. Now, I had to think about this for a few minutes. Like, okay, well, this is, you know, geography idiot here. A lot of people who fly around the world, you know, they'll fly across the Pacific to Hawaii and then into California. And I thought, okay, well, like, how's he going to carry enough fuel? So obviously, he went up through Russia, across the Bering Strait and down from Alaska, left from the UK, I think it was a few months ago, and went east. And like I said, he he stopped by AOPA in Frederick, which means he's kind of on the home stretch. Although, as we know, he's got the hard part left. He is on the home stretch, and he said he was going to stop in every U.S. state. Hmm. So that's a, that's kind of a tall bill to to chomp down on too. Yeah. But he and he and he was relying on the kindness of folks that he met along the way to put him up and to show him, you know, a place to sleep and lay his head for the evening. And uh, he seemed like he was a really good guy. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. He said he's flown every day since March 31st. So he has put that his butt in the seat, and uh, regardless of you know rain, snow, uh, 
cold, hot, whatever, he's gotten in that thing and gone for it. And it's, uh, man, when you think about it, it's, it's really an incredible feat. This is an open cockpit aircraft that goes all of about 70 miles an hour. It's a Magni uh, gyrocopter, which I've seen a couple of these over here, Ian. We have someone on the field, I think, that has one that's real similar to that. And it cruises, at, like you said, at between 75 and 95 miles per hour, and it only holds about 21 gallons of fuel. So he's got about four hours of range. Yeah, so, which, man, some of those trips, I bet he's he's looking for a little more, especially coming down from Alaska. And, of course, as he hops over to Greenland and then Iceland and then home, so... Really a, an incredible story. Now, I was this got me thinking because I, I thought, okay, it's incredible that after so many years, he would be the first guy to fly solo around the world in a gyrocopter. And so I, I looked up, there's a website. They're called Earth Rounders, these guys. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I went on the website because I'm curious what else people have flown around the world. So I, I, have you ever been on this site? It's really fascinating. I know a few Earth Rounders, but I have not been on the site. But now you've got me intrigued. Yeah, yeah. So you got to go on and check it out because... People have flown. I mean, you you know, there, we know about the Earth Rounders who fly things like, not to take away from their accomplishments, but things like Bonanzas and you know Malibus and you know twin turbines and everything else. This guy, of course, in the gyro, that's very impressive. Somebody has done it, believe it or not, in a trike. A trike. A trike. How would you even do that? I don't know. I don't know. It's incredible. He wrote a book. An- another Englishman actually he had a had a passenger slash co pilot for a lot of the journey, but then the guy quit, I guess, at some point and. So, yeah, I got to know more about that. People have done it in RV4s. Uh-huh. I think some guy did it. Somebody from Europe might have done it in a 150 or a 152. I don't know. I, I don't think I could go across the North Atlantic in a 150 or a 152. I just don't think I'd do it. That would be a little scary. And you know what? I, 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 w- I was remiss. I have been on the Earth Rounder site because I was doing research for Mason Andrews in Louisiana. Mm. And he is a y- young pilot who did an Earth Rounder in a Piper Lance last year. Yeah. It's just incredible, the stuff that these guys do. And to do it in an aircraft this basic, this simple, it's just phenomenal. A great accomplishment. So we wish him safety and the best as he goes across the Atlantic. Yeah, no kidding. And he's doing it for charity, too. So that's a a pretty noble cause. We appreciate that. Just before we leave, a Piper PA-12 in 1947? Super Cub. Super Cub around the world. That's (laughs) that's awesome. Awesome. All right. So, hey, uh, moving on, we want to talk about uh, new tech that came out a couple weeks ago. Now, this is something that you can't yet buy, but but they're working on. And you and I have talked about this a little bit. We think there's a future here that just is untapped. And that is HUD, or heads-up display, or head-up display, I guess they call it, technically. Head as singular, yes. Yes, yeah, right. So this is somebody who's developed one actually for the Apache, and the Air Force has, has ordered it. And the hope is, in fact, the Air Force told him to go out and use this thing and sell it commercially. And so the hope is to actually have it available to pilots relatively soon, I'd say. So, and, and relatively soon and relatively inexpensive are relative terms. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but let's get the cost out of the way first. Now, I would get it if it was less than $10,000. Right now, that's a projected price point. But even still, Ian, that's a lot less than another unit that's already out, more or less, that we've reported on. Yes. So Pilot Vision uh, started, like you said, as a low-cost heads-up display for the Air Force transport pilots. That's pretty amazing. I wonder, you know, what he, I wonder how he got the idea for this to to get going on that. Yeah, I don't know, but it's um, it's like you would think, you know, military, you know, green display sort of thing. Uh, you can go online, check it out, Pilot Vision, like you mentioned, from uh, SA Photonics is the name of the company. But uh, the idea is to have it flip up and just be in one eye. So you can, you know, you can have it in your field of vision or you don't have to, kind of like a microphone. 
So that's pretty neat. Well, it's kind of like Google Glass. Have you ever worn one of those? I have. I have. You know, it's yeah. funny because actually Mike Collins, who wrote the story and, and, and the designer, they talk about this. Google Glass, apparently, the field of view is only 16 degrees, which I, I didn't know that. It's really pretty small. This is 62 degrees. So that's like four times as much. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's pretty significant. But yeah, showing things like airports, altitude, heading, that sort of stuff, just, you know, right, right where you're looking. So I was, you and I were chatting about this, as you said, Ian, and I really do think that that there's got to be a way to bring this to market for even less than that. Because you see ads on Facebook and Instagram, you get kind of caught up when you're doing a little social media. These these devices for an automobile, mm-hmm. where you can beam something from your iPhone onto the windshield glass. Yeah. So I mean, it seems that you wouldn't need a whole lot more to make that happen in the air. I wouldn't think so. And, you know, I mean, obviously the military's had them forever. Theirs are a lot more sophisticated and expensive and, and everything else. But like you said, I mean, there's portable solutions. I mean, it was in, I remember when I was a kid, we had it in our car and, you know, with the uh, speedometer that you could put up on the windscreen. Oh, right. I mean, that was probably the early 90s, maybe late 80s. I don't know. So it's been around forever. And it, you're right. It's like, why, why don't we have it yet? We need it. I think that would be helpful. It really would be helpful when you're talking about synthetic vision and getting in a situation where you really need help. I think that that would be a a, a cool safety feature. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, somebody who's listening out there, make it because we want it and we'll buy it. (laughs) That's right, man, for sure. All right. So, hey, actually, if you do make it, you might have to go through the certification hurdle. And uh, if you do that, the new boss at the FAA, Steve Dixon, you're going to have to work through his agency. That's right. Steve Dixon, he is a pilot, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And so he was sworn in on August 12th. So we finally have an acting, not an acting head, but we have a permanent head of the FAA, a new administrator. Yep. Yep. That's right. So you're right. He was, uh, I'm sure everybody read the news. He was held up in confirmation because of some whistleblower complaints, which, you know, we're not going to get into or privy to or anything else, the politics of it. But let's just say, He's in the job now. You're right. He's a pilot. He has quite the challenge ahead of him, I will say. Well, he's got the 737 MAX to clean up right off the bat, Ian. That's uh, no small task. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I I was reading a story yesterday saying that, you know, the FAA's sort of international standard as the safety agency for aviation is coming into question because of the 737. And I know there's this committee that's saying that some of the designees, you know, that basically the FAA is advocating their responsibility too much to the companies, and is that going to change? So there's some there's some big sort of overarching certification questions that are going to have to be answered. Yeah, I think that there might be some changes with regards to that, and it might mean that we might need more staffers. We might need more FAA feet on the street to try to take care of some of these inspection responsibilities themselves instead of designating it out to the manufacturers. Yeah, that's actually a great point because it's like, you know, anybody who's dealt with the FAA recently, especially the FISDO, that you know, I mean, it's like they just don't have the resources. So the, you know, I mean, you can't really fault them. They do what they can with the budget they have. But it's like if you need stuff from the FISDO, you're going to be waiting. Uh, Certification, you know, medical certification, any of it, because, yeah, they're, they're really just understaffed right now. That's right. Well, we'll see what happens with that, but I'm, I'm certainly glad to see a full-time FAA administrator there. But honestly, the, the department was, was being run pretty well already, so I wasn't really worried about it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And we'll be right back. So it's fall soon. It's coming up. School's back in session, and that means Saturday game days, man. That's right, Ian. I want to compliment you on the podcast that you wrote a couple of terrific stories on traveling via GA 
on game day. So how did you even come up with this idea? No, thanks. I mean, it, you know, it's uh, we talk about stuff like this in the office. Actually, you were saying this is a great story, flying to spring training games, you know, using GA to fly through the Grapefruit League and, uh, you know, through Florida and that sort of thing. So I was just thinking, you know, I, I went to the University of Florida, so I'd be at the airport on, on game days and got to see kind of how big it got at the airport and how exciting it was. And so it made me think about, you know, what's it like around the rest of the SEC and then, you you know, maybe the Big Ten and that sort of thing. And, of course, you've flown into a lot of these, covering them as a photojournalist. I have, Ian. I have. Now, before we leave that, and I'll, and I'll mention, you know, my experience, but now you told me a minute ago that you worked at the airport. I did. <laughs> when I you did. were going to school. You're a gator, man. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Yeah, I worked uh, on the line, my first aviation job. Uh, it was great. I loved it. It was a great job. You know, we got to work game days, and uh, we did football charters. You know, these these teams, I don't know if, obviously people know there's a lot of money in college football, but these teams are, you know, they're chartering big, big airplanes to fly these uh, the teams and their boosters around and that sort of thing. So we'd, we'd service them and um, in the visiting team, and it was it was great fun, great fun. Always a great atmosphere. Now, did you take some of that money, that hard-earned money, and use it for flight training operations? I did. I did. And, of course, the great thing about working line is you get to, you know, you get to suck up to the customers, uh-huh. those who own airplanes. And so I got a couple of fun rides out of it. And uh, it's just it's great to be at the airport all day, you know? Free flights are the best. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so so, uh, so when I, soon after I got my uh, private pilot certificate, the first trip I did was with the first passengers I had. And that was when I was at the Atlanta Journal Constitution in the photo department. And we flew from Peachtree to Cab Airport to Oxford, Mississippi to cover the Georgia versus uh, the Mississippi game in Oxford. So, uh, you know, and so I was a little worried about all this. The airport was right next to the campus. Yeah, so the people is. could not have been nicer. We got off the airplane, Cessna 172. And they shuttled us over uh, on a golf cart. And it was like this opened the door yet again to something else that GA provides. You know, no one even told me about the crew cars that you could get, Mm. you know, early on. And that's a significant advantage of being a pilot. But this was great. It was a great way to cover the game. Yeah, absolutely. And we were were fresh instead of having to drive like eight or ten hours. It was, you know, a couple-hour flight. And... Wow, what a way to do that. It was perfect. Yeah. So I, you know, I went down the rabbit hole with this story. Um, I only anticipated just talking to a few FBOs and stuff around game days and, and I did that. But then I started to kind of poke around as I was looking for sources about, you know, well, like where are the airports kind of near campuses? And so I as I got deeper into it, I was amazed. So I, I went through all of the big five. So this is, I think it's a roughly 60, 65 college programs, the top programs in the country. Pac-10, you know, Big Ten, Big 12, ACC, SEC. And of all of those programs, all of them had an airport within a half an hour. Many of them had airports fewer than 10 minutes from the campus, from the stadium. Yeah, and you indicated uh, on this one that Oxford was seven minutes away. Yeah. I mean, I, I could have sworn it was five minutes away, yeah, but right. it was r- <laughs> right there. And the University of Georgia over in Athens at, at Epps Air- Airport is just a couple minutes away as well. And and you miss so much traffic. I mean, you could be literally stuck in traffic going to a college game for two hours in a car. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, it is, it is a great way to do it. Now, I will say... You got to plan ahead because obviously part of going to a college football game is tailgating. So it's like, you know, you probably want to plan your weekend before you even launch to get a hotel because they're going to be in short supply because chances are you're going to want to have a good time. So you got to plan to probably stay overnight. And I think a lot of people do 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 that and leave kind of on Sunday morning. 
I had a great time talking to you know the folks at Texas A and M. They've got a bar at the FBO, so when the like for example the charters come in, the passengers can jump off and start tailgating right away, and they've got free stuff, and it's just it's great. It's a great atmosphere. Yeah, the atmosphere is good, and pilots are happy, and, and people are happy now. That's providing the home team wins. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's very true. I bet the dogs won that game at uh, Ole Miss, though, woof, didn't they? Woof, woof. Yeah, I bet they did. <laughs> So yeah, we'd love to hear your feedback in the story. You know, and if you've been to some of these, I've heard from a few folks who have uh, who do this and you know fly in for their alma maters or whatever. So yeah, tell us what you think about some of these airports or or what the experience is like. Or if you've got an idea, you want to hop around your conference, you can do it by GA. It's a great way to do it. A lot better than the airlines and a heck of a lot better than driving. Absolutely. Yeah. So hey, uh, moving on. All right. So the gamma numbers. We always like to talk about these. It's it's a real nice pulse of what's going on in the industry. These are new airplanes and helicopters that have been delivered through the quarter. So those were just released, and you wrote the story. So give us give us the quick hit. How how are things looking? The quick hit is things are looking pretty good for the piston airplane market, Ian. And basically, we were thinking that the training segment is helping lead that market again. We delivered 565 aircraft so far, and that was an increase of about 15% over last year, Ian, through the second quarter. So the demand for new trainers is driving a lot of that. On the other flip side of that coin, the rotorcraft and turboprop markets have slowed. So I, I don't know if we were ready to wave the yellow caution flag or not, but they did slip. Piston helicopter uh, shipments slipped 149 units to 110 units. And turbine-powered uh, helicopters also dropped by about 10%. But I think, you know, looking at the bright side of things, the piston market is doing quite well so far. And it could be a harbinger of things to come. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's a really good synopsis. You know, we uh, we were talking before we came on just about some of the stuff that's going on. And I think rotocrafts especially are just, it puzzles me because, you know, it's like when oil took a, took a nosedive a few years ago, the turbines went down. And since then, it's like, you know, now the pistons are going way down. I mean, Robinson is just, they're hurting. I don't know what's going on there. And and it's funny because, you know, Rotocraft had the same problem that uh, that airlines and others have in that you've got a whole generation of folks who are retiring. So you're going to need training helicopters to get folks up to speed and, and get them in these jobs. So I'm not really sure what's happening there, but um, that, that is a little bit puzzling. It's a good news, though, story, I think, from the from the piston airplane side. Absolutely. Right. And I th- and we were talking about this a little bit, and the numbers bear it out. I mean, Diamond Aircraft in particular, they almost doubled the number of, uh, of DA-40s. That's a, their single-engine model and a, a very capable aircraft. They almost doubled their numbers from last year. They sold already. They delivered 48 aircraft right now, and then last year it was a total of 45 DA-40s for the whole year. Wow. So already over in half the year, they've already beat their total for, for yeah. last year. Yeah, that's impressive. It is. The other thing with them, the 42. Now, this this is a unique problem that the training market has right now in that as people are coming up through, of course, they need multis, which the multi-training for a few years just nosedived. I mean, you know, there were just sort of old, run-out, crappy Apaches and stuff like that on lines that were really old. And now they, they need replenishment. Um, there's tons of people training. They need these multis. And so the DA-42, I think the second quarter of last year, they what they delivered five of those this year 30 that's significant that's a tremendous uptick yeah yeah man i think you brought up a good point i mean you're right the apaches and the aztecs of the world are pretty darn old right now and people are used to more modern aircraft more modern avionics and a little bit a little bit more capable aircraft nothing which is 
you know, something that this training market is really starting to see, you know, a big upswing of that. Yep. The other one that you pointed out and is a great one is Cirrus. Now, we we bashed on them a little bit in for the first quarter results, but uh, they've really rebounded this quarter. Absolutely. And, and I think they're on track to either equal or surpass their total number of units that they delivered last year. And, you know, they're, they're still basically the market leader at this point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think, you know, the first quarter of this year, they only put out, you know, the, the 22T, you know, the, the turbocharged big SR22T, their, their big piston. They only put out 34 in the first quarter. Second quarter, they put out 54 for a total of 88. Yeah, it's almost double. That's pretty good. It is good. And so their, their totals, the Cirrus totals are still looking really strong. And uh, la- I guess last year in all of 2018, if you count all of the aircraft, including the SF-50, they had 443 deliveries, and they have 203 so far this year. Yeah, so they're 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 doing well. Pick back up. So not too many other real big surprises, I would say, on the list. You know, you've got some that are still, you know, sort of just humming along. Mooney put out two. Icon, uh, they're doing 14 a quarter, very steady production rate to try and catch up to their backlog. But I'm worried about Icon, Ian, because of uh, the recent layoffs. And I'm not just not sure that they could sustain this uh, at only putting out 14 aircraft in a quarter. That's good. But is that enough? And, you know, they had orders for 600 or was it thousands? Yeah, I know. Yeah, we're going to have to see what happens there. But otherwise, I think, you know, like we said, not, not too many big surprises. But again, the one that the one the killer just is is helicopters, piston especially, and most of that downturn comes from Robinson because of course they're the biggest. So you know, last year in the second quarter they delivered ten R twenty twos, two of the R forty four Cadets, nineteen of the R forty four Raven one, and thirty two of the twos. So you know, this quarter not even close to that. I mean, you're looking at what four of the 22s, none of the cadets, only eight of the Raven ones and 21 of the twos. So it, it's a, it's a big dip from them. And I, I would, uh, I would think that the R22s and the cadet, which is a 44 cadet version would be driving the training market, but maybe that market is saturated. I don't know. You know, that's yeah. something to think about. Yep. Nope. That's absolutely right. So, well, I think, you know, like we said, good news, bad news. We'll have to see what happens for the rest of the year, but um, really good to see training driving that piston number. And we, we just hope that continues. So, uh, hey, speaking of Robinson, I, I hate to bring him in on the bad news like that. And in fact, we talked long before the, the gamma numbers came out, so we won't be addressing their deliveries. But Tim Tucker, just a really fascinating guy, flew Hueys in Vietnam. And uh, for a long time, almost since the beginning, has served as Robinson's chief instructor. And so if you've flown to Robinson, or know somebody who has, chances are they have learned from what Tim Tucker has put out. Tucker, uh, thanks so much for for joining us today. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and and how you got started at Robinson and um, a little bit about your flying. I learned to fly back in, let's see, 1970 in the U.S. Army. Spent about 27 years as an instructor in various different capacities for the U.S. Army. As far as my Robinson flying, I actually purchased the very first R-22 that was sold. Oh, wow. That was serial number three back in 1979. 
Still number one, the original R-22, it first flew in 1975. However, it crashed about halfway through the FAA approval program. So the company built serial number two, which was the helicopter that was used to then complete the FAA approval program. And seal number three, the one I purchased, was the helicopter that Robinson used to get what's called the production certification. There's kind of two steps or, or two stages to this whole approval process. One is you get the design approved, and that's the type certificate. But then you have to prove to the FAA that you can build the helicopter to the same specifications that the, the design calls for. And that's called the production certification. So ship three, the one I bought, was the one that the company used to get the production certification. So how did you come to find out about the helicopter so early? I mean, are, were you in California? Did you know Frank previously? Or how'd you get in so early? Well, I was a part owner of an airplane flight school at uh, Long Beach, California. And my uh, three other partners were all airplane instructors. And I was kind of the only frustrated helicopter instructor among <laughs> the four of us. And I happened to read a, an article in the LA Times about this guy up on the Palos Verdes Hill who was designing this new little helicopter. So I went and visited him and, and it just started from there. And so what did, um, I, I guess, excuse my ignorance a little bit on Army training helicopters, but what did you, what did you learn to fly in in the Army? I learned in the Army TH-55, which would be equivalent to a a Schweitzer or that at that time, Hughes 269A model. And that's what I learned in. But as an instructor in the Army, I taught in the UH-1. Okay. So I want to get right into, you know, what what everybody always talks about when they talk about Robinsons. And that's, you know, mass bumping and low inertial and everything else. And so you went from uh, this three-blade system that you had experience with, although you said you taught in the UH-1, but to the Robinson. So you obviously have a point of view on the inherent safety of the Robinson line. And so tell me kind of your perspective on that and how you teach it. Well, you know, I was in the Army during the Army's big entrance into this whole low-G thing in the, oh, probably would be the late 70s, perhaps early 80s, as the Army got into their Napa the Earth line. Mm -hmm. And that's when they started to really experience and investigate this low-G phenomenon. And I remember back in those days in the Army the We'd get all kinds of changes to our flight manuals uh, with respect to maneuvers that would cause this low G and, and maneuvers that would cause high flapping angles. So I was pretty well attuned to this whole thing when we had our first mass bumping accident in the R-22, which was in the early 80s. Uh, and, you know, I don't think it really is much to do with the R-22 other than it's susceptible as any two-bladed semi-rigid rotor system is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So from the beginning, did you feel like you felt comfortable with the R-22 and buying it? Because has your opinion always been that, that training is the limitation there? And whether you're flying a Robinson or anything else, it's like as long as you train for the helicopter, then uh, then you should be fine. And that the the helicopter itself is is perfectly fine the way it's designed. Sure. And as I say, from my Army experience, this whole OG mass bumping thing is a, a two-bladed, semi-rigid issue in any helicopter, be it uh, an FH-1100 or an UH-1 or AH-1 or Robinson that has a two-bladed, semi-rigid system is susceptible to it. And that has to be taken into account in all the maneuvers and training and everything. So it really wasn't 
that much of a uh, surprise to me with the Robinson at all. So did you put it on the, on the line at the flight school? Right. We had uh, ship three. And then we also had ship four. Oh, wow. And we eventually built up to where we had uh, 10 R-22s and I think uh, a jet ranger and then, of course, all of our airplanes. Yeah, yeah. And what did the students think of them? Well, at the time, the probably the going price for flight instruction back in the early 80s was probably in the neighborhood of 130 to $150 an hour, depending on the helicopter. And we were offering it for... $48 an hour. So basically 30% of what the common costs were. So we were backed up about six weeks. I mean, we couldn't uh, turn them down, so to speak. So as you can imagine, at that big price difference, uh, we had quite a bit of interest in, in flying in the R-22. Yeah, yeah, I bet. So what what brought you to, to work for the factory then? Well, as you know, these things happen, you know, our flight school, we, we built to a certain level of, of success. Uh, we were also a, a dealer for, for Robinson at the time. And it was one of those situations where we had four partners and, you know, each one of them wanted to do something different with this money we'd been making. And so essentially it was a divorce. And, uh, and I left and, w- and went to work uh, full time for the factory. Hmm. And then, and did you start in an instructional capacity at the factory or, or something else? Well, uh, you got to remember 19, let's see, that would have been 82, kind of that time frame. Things were still pretty difficult for Robinson. And so, you know, I did a lot of everything. But in the fall of 82 is when we had this idea of a safety course and put together the safety course and began to teach the safety course. And that would have been within the oh, first six months of my employment there. Yeah. And and you've been doing it ever since. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people, they see instruction as a stepping stone, let's say. Your situation is a little bit different because you're you're not doing primary instruction. You're doing more sort of professional instruction and type specific. So how does it feel to to be so engaged and so so pinpoint knowledgeable about specific models to the point where people around the world come to you for expertise. It's got to be a a pretty interesting position to be in. Well, you know, I I have done quite a bit of primary instruction. Back when we got those first helicopters, it was all primary instruction. And I've been a FAA designated pilot examiner since 1982. I've done over 8,000 FAA check rides, and many of them have been private pilot check rides not only in the Robinson helicopters, but I do it also in, in seven other make and models. So through the years, I've been involved in the primary instruction end of things from the pilot examiner standpoint, and obviously working with flight schools and preparing people for the private pilot tests. And so, although you're right, I've never, I never, I stopped doing the actual primary instruction, teaching people to hover. I certainly have stayed uh, quite involved in that primary end of things, especially from the from the examiner standpoint. I wrote all Robinson flight syllabuses for the private pilot and their maneuvers guides for how to do the maneuvers in all three of the helicopters. And I've kind of just stayed in the, the training end of things since the very beginning. Hmm. So, yeah, I think, you know, for, for especially for pilots of fixed wing aircraft that maybe aren't familiar with this, Robinson is 
I think a little different in that when you when you train on an R22, in almost all cases, well, or 44 or whatever it is that you're training on, you know, the schools, even though they're independent schools, they're using Robinson's training guides and the instructors have been Robinson uh, essentially certified to train. And so I, tell me a little bit about, I guess, that kind of the whole architecture of instructional training that goes on in order to increase the safety of those primary students around the world. Okay, well, if we go back to the, uh, I, I kind of just lovingly refer to it as the early days. As you can imagine, coming into the R22, we really had two types of instructors. We had, in many instances, people like myself who had come out of the U.S. military, had many times thousands of flight hours, but all that flight time had really been in big helicopters. And this was our first experience in a small, light, quick, low inertia rotor system. So there is certainly a a conversion process that that pilot has to go through. The other type of instructor we had at the time were were airplane instructors coming into the world of helicopters. And back then you could get your helicopter commercial license in 25 hours and add a flight instructor certificate on in say 10 or 15 hours. And you could have something in the neighborhood of 50 hours total helicopter time, and you were an instructor. So obviously we would have had, uh, we had issues there. And so it's because of this, we really felt that make and model experience was one of the most important attributes of a flight instructor in helicopters, especially in a small helicopter like the R-22. And that was really the, the thing that got us going on our initial safety course. For about the first probably 10 years of our safety course, it was just for flight instructors. And the whole idea was to take these people who did not have very much Robinson experience or R22 experience and and try to give them some do's and don'ts in the little R22. And so is it a situation now where every Robinson instructor goes through the course or do you feel like a vast majority do or what's how does how does that work? Well, we don't have any requirement for it, but certainly a lot of flight schools have a requirement to hire people that they have to have been through the course. I know there are insurance companies that offer reduced premiums if the flight instructor has been through the course. So at Robinson, we have no requirement to go through it, to teach in an R-22. But as I say, uh, employers, insurance companies, uh, they might. And so what, what goes on at the course? What's it like? Well, it's a three and a half day course. It's comprises a review of all the fatal accidents that have happened and a little bit of the hows and whys around them. We review critical flight conditions such as low RPM rotor stall and vortex ring state. We spend uh, quite a bit of time on the helicopter flight manual, not only going through all the limitations and things, but we explain the testing that was done to determine the limitation what problems you might have if you exceed the limitation. And then there's a half a day taught by our service department. It's kind of a a maintenance for pilots kind of perspective. And then we have a flight component. And everybody flies anywhere from, oh, an hour to 1.3. And so you go up and we go through a number of these specific maneuvers that we've seen uh, cause problems. We vary the flight period a little bit depending on the experience level that uh, we're dealing with because we now open the course up to 
private pilots. So we could be flying one time with a 80 hour brand new private pilot or a 15,000 hour professional pilot whose company just bought an R66 and everything in between. So we tailor the flight portion as much as we can to the particular situation experience level of the attendee. Hmm. Okay. So give me a couple of tips. So, you know, you have this whole three and a half day course. So if somebody's learning to fly in a Robinson or, or maybe flies it regularly or even owns one, what's a couple of easy things they can do to increase safety? Well, that's a, that's kind of a big question. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, there's really no difference between learning to fly or owning or flying a Robinson helicopter as really there is with any other helicopter. So I think the the same things, the same problems would exist throughout the helicopter industry. I, I don't think there's anything that we could say is unique to an R-22 or an R-44 and R-66 that, you know, would be that significant. So, you know, my answer would be this kind of things that would apply really across the whole helicopter operational area. And I think probably, you know, the decision-making on the part of pilots is the one area that if I could wave a magic wand and improve, that would be the area. Uh, that just the poor decisions that pilots of all helicopters appear to make. I think I've seen statistics uh, at various different times, and they're all over 90% of the accidents that occur are normally pilot error accidents. And most of those pilot error accidents are just bad decisions on the part of the pilot. And we see that quite a bit in our fatal accident rate. So it's not really a proficiency problem or necessarily a knowledge problem. It's a pilot decision-making problem. And tell me, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. Do you have a favorite model? (laughs) Well, you know, when I'm asked that question, I'm asked it quite a bit. And since I'm so associated with Robinson and have been for so long, everybody thinks it's going to be, you know, which one of the Robinson models is my favorite. But you have to understand that I was an instructor in the Army UH-1 for 27 years. And I, I kind of put it in this context. You know, I haven't lived in the same house for as long. I haven't driven the same car for as long. I used to be able to say I haven't been with the same woman for as long. <laughs> but luckily, I can't say that anymore. And then I've done everything in the in the UH-1. You know, I've flown it in combat. I've fought fires and IFR, night vision goggles. So there's no question that the Army Huey is a place in my heart that uh, could never be replaced. What about it? What makes it so special? Well, as I say, having flown it for so long in so many different situations, conditions, you know, it's always gotten me home. And it's a, a helicopter with a lot of margin, can do a lot of things. And, and as I say, I've just done so many different things in it over so many years that, uh, as I say, it has a place in my heart. Hmm. Do you feel like at this point in your life, do you, you know, if you're going to go on a game show and you're going to be quizzed uh, on the UH-1 or uh, one of the Robinson models, uh, what, would, what would you feel more comfortable and confident with? Well, of course, you know, I, I haven't, fl- I retired from the Army in 1997, and so haven't flown a Huey since 1997, so that's more than 20 years. So obviously, I'm a little rusty in, in talking about it and, and, and flying it, whereas with the Robinson helicopters, you know, I've been teaching the safety course there since 82, and so I'm certainly, and I give check rides in it 
around and do training around the world in it. So I'm certainly more current and comfortable uh, in the R22, R44, R66 now than I would be in, in the Huey. But uh, still, there's that, as I say, that place in my heart. One interesting thing is that uh, our safety course at the factory, we've now done that quite a bit outside the U.S. I've given over 120 foreign safety courses in 30 different countries, 57 different cities, and have, in the course of that, have accumulated, uh, oh, I think about 17 foreign licenses. Uh, most of them are temporary licenses for the time that I'm doing the course in that country, but I've had the opportunity to, as I say, fly these helicopters virtually all over the world. It's not unusual for me in a 12-month period to uh, visit every continent, and I'm always amazed at how similar pilots are around the world, and maybe it's just because people are similar, but I'm always asked, well, how are the pilots in, in Chile? How do they compare to other pilots around the world? And, you know, pilots are pilots, I guess, just like people are people. So in every place I go, they're good pilots, they're bad pilots, they're smart pilots, they're dumb pilots. Uh, yeah, I, can't really, I can't really say one country has a better breed of pilots. However, one thing is pretty clear, and, and that is there's no place else in the world where aviation is as accepted and as free and it you can do so many different things as in the U.S. Uh, we, we just have the best place in the world to fly, no question about it. From an air traffic control standpoint to a regulatory standpoint, there's no question this is the best place to fly. Tell me, uh, you know, I think most people probably know that Robinsons are pretty big in places like Australia and New Zealand and, and a bit in Europe and, and that sort of thing. Where would we be surprised to find them? Where, where were you surprised to go the first time uh, to see a community and, and have to teach the course? Well, let's see. First of all, understand that about 70% of Robinson's yearly production for the last 20, 25 years has been exported. So there are a lot of helicopters all over the world. As far as the safety course that I've done, uh, probably Rwanda would be the one place where you wouldn't expect a Robinson safety course to be held. But they have five R44s that they use for training, primary training in the Rwandan Air Force. And so I did a one-week safety course in Kigali, Rwanda. Wow. Huh. I, I guess I hadn't thought about that, but I mean, just because language must be a big barrier, because just because they can speak English on the radio doesn't mean that somebody understands and knows English well enough to receive information from a week-long course. So that's that's got to be a challenge sometimes. Certainly that's the case, probably the biggest challenge. And it, it varies really around the world. You know, we say English is the aviation language, but you're right. It's a varying degrees of proficiency with it. And I've been in situations in the helicopter where the person I'm with speaks virtually zero English and everything is done in sign language. <laughs> Universal. Do you have a, um, a favorite place you've flown on one of these trips? Well, I guess I would have to say Australia. I've done probably 15 different courses all over Australia. I've probably been more places on Australia than most Australians have been. 
so, and so I, I think probably Australia has the most varied, and I just like the country. I just like the people. That's great. Well, Tim Tucker, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, and uh, best of luck there with the future courses. Thank you very much, Ian. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, David. So I don't know. Were you surprised? I mean, you've got a chance to fly the Huey in combat. Are you surprised it's still his favorite helicopter? Or do you think it would have switched over by now? Oh, no, I'm sure it's his favorite because, it, you know, that was such a capable and is such a capable machine. It took such abuse. Although I will tell you this, I have spent a lot of time in a Robinson R-22 and um, a lot of that was to cover floods in South Georgia and for a lot of my photojournalism experience in the Atlanta paper. And I was very comfortable in that aircraft and um, I, so comfortable that I actually wanted to take lessons, which I just recently did start taking a few helicopter lessons. And so I, I think there's a lot out there and it's just a fun thing. Helicopters are, are really capable aircraft and they are fun. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could get us at aopa.org slash hangartalk. Of course, we're on iTunes. We're on the Sporties Takeoff app and Spotify or the AOPA Hangar if you want to chat with us. All right, we'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.